The teachings of truth that we share here on Sunday are Bible-based and Christian-oriented, non-denominational, non-ritualistic, non-proselyting. That's a mouthful, isn't it? The Bible is an amazing work. We're told it's the most widely read book of all times and the most misunderstood. I'm sure that many of us grew up under the injunction that we should read the Bible every day. Chances are likely that if that was your teaching, you may now feel somewhat guilty. Because unless you're highly imaginative and have studied the inner meaning of the book, you probably have long since bogged down and given up in confusion over the these and thous and the begets and the begets. And the picture of an angry, vengeful God and a rampant temptation of the devil. Judge Thomas Trord makes a comment that is very relevant here. He says, the Bible is the book of the emancipation of man. This means man's deliverance from sorrow and sickness, from poverty, struggle, and uncertainty, from ignorance and limitation, and finally from death itself. This may appear to be a tall order. Nevertheless, it is impossible to read the Bible with a mind unworked by antecedent conditions derived from traditional interpretations without seeing that this is exactly what it promises, that it professes to contain the secret whereby this happy condition of perfection may be attained. Thoughts of Thomas Chord. The Bible is the story of your life and mine. In a personally symbolic way, it has many vital messages for our contemporary experience. The Bible was written in poetic symbolism. Elizabeth Barrett Browning writes, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit rounded and pluck blackberries. Many students of the Bible are blackberry pickers, dealing with the literal, the superficial, missing the inherent divine wisdom. So we invite you significantly, symbolically, to take off your shoes, to remove the beliefs that are custom-made, and sense meanings that will mirror and give directions for your soul unfoldment. We're going to deal with one story of the Bible today, seeking to get a metaphysical, personally symbolic interpretation, the story of David and Goliath. This is one of the most well-known stories to all persons, even those who have had little truck with Bible teaching. I'm sure you remember it. There was a war going on between Israelites and the Philistines. Each held a hilltop with a valley in between. In the Bible, somehow it seems that the Israelites and the Philistines are always at war. This has great significance. Remember, these two nations represent poles of consciousness within us, the spiritual aspirations on the one side and the material thoughts, the pull of the acquisitive instinct on the other. The two armies of 1 Samuel 17 represent two aggregations of thoughts in the mind of every person, those that know and strive to follow the truth and those that are in open enmity and violent opposition to everything God likes. These conscious tendencies are present within us all the time, though they take different emphases one way or the other. 
Remember, the Philistines had a hero, a giant named Goliath. He was so big, so massive, that we're told the whole earth shook when he walked. He cried out to the Israelite forces encamped on the opposing hillsides, I'll make you a proposition. If you have a giant who defeats me, we will be your slaves. We beat him. If he beats me, we'll, we'll be your slaves. I'll say that again. I might, might have missed it. I'll make you a proposition. If you have a giant who defeats me, we will be your slaves. If he beats me, we will be your slaves. Of course, it was a catch. The Israelites had no giant. So for 40 days, the giant Goliath came forward and set up the challenge. No one accepted it. Every time he strode upon the battlefield, the Israelites quaked. Now, up in the hills, there was a young shepherd boy named David. His father had asked him to take some provisions to the armed camp. They set off on a journey. He arrived just in time to hear Goliath make his proud boast and witness the terrifying effect on the Israelites. He watched grown men run away, cringe in fear, when they saw the giant. So David asked about this. Who is this heathen Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? They told him, it's not your affair, little boy. Go back to your sheep. Now, David represents the urge for spiritual growth in the individual, which is sometimes like a little person, not very powerful in many of us. Keeping his father's sheep means the centering process of spiritual thoughts. It is our greatest source of power. But for most of us, it's usually off in the hills or in the depths of our inmost self. Remains basically a potential for overcoming that awaits the calling forth. And David went to King Saul, pleaded for the opportunity to engage Goliath in battle. Of course, they all laughed at him at first. Saul represents the will functioning at the level of personality. At first, he's hung up on and borders on enslavement to materiality. David represents the entrance upon the equation of understanding and love. When the will is supported by understanding, it becomes a mighty force. David finally convinced King Saul to let him take on the giant. Saul was in a tight spot. He was in no position to quibble. So he dressed David in his own armor, a bronze helmet on his head, and on his body a heavy coat of mail. The result, it was so heavy that the slight youth couldn't even walk. This could have been the end of the story. With many of us, it is an end, or a pause in the growth of our life. For hobbled and restricted, David, the spiritual potential, is totally frustrated. The material-centered Goliath, taunting, strutting, crying out, money and position is where it's at. This is the consciousness stalemate that prevails at the heart of many persons in the quest for truth. I call it the David-Goliath syndrome. David representing the spiritual aspirations Goliath representing the relentless tug of the human, the attraction of materiality, the acquisitive instinct. It often winds up in a stalemate. The David consciousness bogged down in a heavy chain of armor. Until we find the will to confront the giant of materiality within us, until we can see Goliath for what he is, the bullying materialistic thoughts that say, your idealist aspirations have no relevance in our society. Money and power is where it's at. Till we get that sense, 
You mean spiritually impotent. Emerson reflects a realistic appraisal of the human condition, and he says, things are in the saddle and ride mankind. That's probably true in our day, too. We've seen dramatically changing values in recent years, where the good job has come to mean the high salary, and career success is judged by the bottom line of net worth rather than spiritual growth and the degree of self-worth. We've become a materialistic and gadget-conscious culture which requires more and more money to provide an expanding list of necessities, and the job is the place to earn it. This may lead to job hopping for jobs that pay more money, where a person will often leave a job he likes to take a better-paying job he hates. In the past days, from Pennsylvania, Goliath has been taunting people with the vision of a $100 million windfall in the form of a winning lottery ticket. We've seen a spectacle of millions of people being drawn into the web of greed and materiality, staking their personal well-being on the wheel of chance. To me, this is an unfortunate thing that the states are co-conspirators in this Pied Piper's lure of millions into the clutches of speculation and of downright gambling. This is not to infer that games of chance are immoral. To preach against the sin of gambling is to miss the whole idea. The important thing is it is a self-delusive trap, because in an orderly universe, there is simply no way in which one can get something for nothing. Under divine law, you receive as you've given, no more, no less. Your fortune always begins with you, not with a winning lottery number, with any kind of lucky break. There's really only one way that you can change your luck. That is by altering your thoughts. The great lotto jackpots dangled before the glassy-eyed public are a no-win situation for society. Let me quote you from some lines I wrote some time ago in my book, Spiritual Economics. How inadvertently and yet surely we corrupt the ideals of a child when by precept and by example we teach him that life is to be found and experienced out there in the world. Thus, when he arrives at the age of responsibility, he is urged to go out into the world and make his fortune. He is progressively introduced to the idea of getting the breaks, of expecting success to come in one great stroke of fortune. And he sets a veritable minefield of traps for himself so that the career frustrations, the layoffs, or the investment failures are all the result of bad breaks. How blessed is the child who early along in life is taught that his fortune begins with him. He will grow into a spiritually mature adult who is confident that he has the potential in himself to set into operation the fundamental process which will cause all things in the world to work for his good. He will know that his fortune is not something to find but to unfold. To me, it is a sad thing that the metaphysical movement has been mired in the David Goliath syndrome. It has often rationalized the taunting cry of Goliath as representing the quest for spiritual growth. The result is the widespread sickness called affluenza. <laughs> we all know what that's about. In the world, we've come to accept this emphasis on money as the goal of life. But to me, it's very sad to see the growing emphasis on money and things as the object of the study and practice of truth. I agree with John Ruskin, who wrote, 
What right have you to take the word wealth, which originally meant well-being, and degrade and narrow it by confining it to certain sorts of material objects measured by money? Now, of course, prosperity is the spiritual right of every person. As we work with truth, we should outpicture abundance in all our affairs. We should be prospered. But we pervert the spiritual process if we make the acquisition of money or things the goal of our spiritual quest. The key, as Jesus put it, is to seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The kingdom is the divine pattern within you, and your potential to release your imprisoned splendor. And the things of life, the money, the possessions, the jobs, the success, will be added unto you, not by chance, by earning the right in consciousness to have them earning the right in consciousness to have them. I could say that there are Goliaths in David's clothing among teachers and teachings of truth who have adorned the covers of books on prosperity with dollar signs to suggest that the metaphysical quest for amassing wealth is a kind of spiritual growth. As you can imagine, I've not always been popular among my peers in the field of truth teaching. When I say that this thing-centered emphasis in truth is a gross materialization of a beautiful spiritual realization. Often the all-things-are-possible promise of Jesus is met with a covetous gleam of dollar signs in the eyes. Techniques are offered by which to work for the high-powered job, the luxurious condominium, the expensive foreign car. Whatever you want, just treat for it, and you'll get it. Often it's the crassest kind of materialism. Again, let me say that in, in the whole universe, there is abundance for all. And I believe that in truth, you can unfold experience of prosperity, and you should. But if I can wag the parental finger, don't indulge in fantasies of magic demonstrations. Don't delude yourself that your money problems will be solved by simplistic solutions. Don't pin your hopes on a stroke of good fortune, such as winning the lottery. Your prosperity is not a matter of luck. Emerson says, Foolish people deal with luck. Wise people deal with cause and effect. Life is consciousness, remember? How easily we forget. If there's a condition of lack in your affairs, in some way you've been projecting the focus of a lack mentality. So take charge of your life by assuming the responsibility for your thoughts. Change your thoughts. Become centered in the universal flow of substance from within. This will lead you into a new level of relating to life. Things will begin to happen. Investments will show greater growth. Salaries may increase. Pregnant ideas will pop into your mind. Doors of opportunity will open to you. All things will be added unto you when you seek first the inner kingdom of faith in the universe of abundance. This is the truth, and the truth works. The drive for success, for achievement, is basic to every person. Essentially, it is a spiritual urge to grow. Unfortunately, it is often perverted by the call of Goliath into a thirst for power and a hunger for things. There's another side of this relentless urge for success. I call it the success syndrome. It is a factor that is at once the key to success and the reason for an awful lot of failure. The success urge is basic in the American dream. Here, anyone can be on top of the economic heap. So most, most persons want to be, or feel guilty because they think they should want to be. One who has been on the same job assignment for years may be asked, are you still on that job? 
The implication is, why haven't you progressed? Actually, that person may be quite happy and fulfilled. And what to him is a perfectly stimulating work. And he may have continuously found new and creative ways to do his work. It brought fulfillment to himself and success to his co company. But progression is not measured alone by the title on the office door. More important is what the person has done with himself. Yet when viewed to the success syndrome, this person should be satisfied, dissatisfied with his work. Many persons are influenced by this pressure. So may be unable to put their full effort into their work, feeling that they should be climbing, prospering, succeeding in a worldly sense. There's a slogan of a now-troubled airline. Instead of earning their wings every day, they yearn for a bigger airplane. Listening to the call of Goliath, instead of seeing this inner feeling as a cosmic urge to be more, is normally interpreted as a desire to have more. Under the success syndrome, which is the David-Goliath syndrome, we're conditioned to feel that we must always be getting ahead. There can be no rest until we reach the top. And because there's not enough room for everybody in the highest echelons of business, most persons harbor a secret sense of failure. Even the vice president of a corporation thinks he should be the president. There's always something ahead that causes us to feel that we've never quite made it. So now back at the ranch, as they say, back at the encampments of the Israelites and the Philistines, where Goliath is hurling insults and challenges across the canyon, here's an immobilized David struggling to walk under the heavy armor of Saul's. This was an evidence of Saul, symbolizing the will without which understanding becomes willfulness, insisting that David, the spiritual aspiration of every person, must fight the giant on its terms. But David wisely lays aside the traditional armor and spear. He went to a brook and selected five small pebbles, symbolizing powerful affirmations of truth. He put them in a pouch hanging from his waistband. With his slingshot in hand, he's ready to do battle. As he drew near, Goliath hurled remarks to the youth such as, come to me and I'll cut you into little pieces and feed you to the birds. This symbolizes the resistance to change of the subconscious and deeply entrenched thoughts of materialism. We misunderstand ourselves and the process involved unless we realize that there's this subconscious resistance. It's an inertial force that seeks to hold us back in our spiritual quest. But David was not afraid. This keeper of the sheep of spiritual thoughts cried out, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come in the name of God whom you defy. This day Jehovah will deliver you into my hands and I will take your head away from you. Now remember, this is an inner struggle between the urge of spiritual nature of you and the entrenched thoughts of life and the circumference of being within you, sensual material thoughts. Now laying aside the coat of mail given David by Saul symbolizes the important realization that every person must wear his own armor. He must be clothed and protected by his own thoughts. No one can grow for you. Though we sometimes forget it, no one can do your praying for you. This is why I always insist that in the final analysis, achieving overcoming or healing or prosperity calls for the smooth stones of words of power selected from your own inner book of inspiration. Many folks, as they seek to grow in truth, forget that the growth must come from within. It's not finding a new teacher, finding a new exciting book or a new course of study. These may be steps along the way. Ultimately, it's finding the depth within ourselves. David took one of the five stones, 
placed it in his slingshot and hurled it at Goliath, striking him in the forehead. He fell on his face. Whereupon David took the giant's own sword and cut off his head. So we can destroy the giants of human consciousness that often lord it over us. The belief in physical deterioration and illness, the bugaboo of fear and lack, experience of job insecurity and unemployment. Don't take the heavy armor of Saul, the custom-made treatments and affirmations of truth, as the last word. Don't lean on the prayer efforts of others and let down your own disciplined effort of becoming conscious of the truth yourself. Be willing to face the fact that much metaphysical effort to find healing and prosperity in overcoming is rooted in what we're calling the David-Goliath syndrome. The battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Turn within at the place where the universe streams into you, select five smooth stones of well-developed ideas of truth, and hurl the stone, which means speak the word, and we're told the word will go forth to accomplish that where to it is sent. Browning has a classic poem called Saul. David exclaims, I believe it. Tis thou, God, that givest, tis I who receive. And the first is the last, and thy will is my power to receive. All's one gift, thou canst not grant it, moreover, as prompt to my prayer, as I breathe out this prayer, as I open these arms to the air. We're always believing in something. But the same power by which you believe in the Goliath as a power to control your life with what I call affluenza is the power to believe yourself equal to life. It's not enough to affirm, as sometimes we do. God is great, God is good, God is wonderful. Instead, you should say, I am great, I am wonderful. God is wonderful and I am wonderful. God is great and I am great. You can't have one without the other. Many persons have all sorts of exciting, positive things to say about God, but they fail to attribute these same ideas and realizations to themselves. Faith in God is faith in yourself. Faith is the stone that actually slays, slays Goliath. When we truly believe in ourselves, the specter of insufficiency loses its head. And to believe in yourself is to believe in God. To really believe in God is to come to a great sense of respect for and faith in yourself. So remember, the story of David and Goliath is not simply a Sunday school tale gleaned from the Bible, something that happened 3,000 years ago. It has a message for you and me today. Even as the Bible is irrelevant, as it becomes a part of your life, it becomes your story of unfoldment. So this particular story from the Bible is irrelevant unless you put yourself in the picture. Reread the story from the Bible. 1 Samuel, 17th chapter. 1 Samuel, 17th chapter. But put yourself in the picture. That's what metaphysical interpretation of the Bible is all about. It's a story of your consciousness. Your life has been corrupted by the lure of materialism, of things, of possessions, and power. We're all involved in this corruptible situation, the influence that the world has upon us constantly, all the way from the advertisings that we see in the paper to the things that are coming to us through television and various media forms of media, and certainly things that come from puppets and the preachments of religion. Deep in your inmost being, your David self is busy tending the sheep of powerful spiritual ideas. Within all persons, not a person in the world, does not have this David consciousness tending the sheep of his spiritual ideas. The important thing is, 
As Paul says, we must stir up the gift of God within us. We must awaken the David for, for us. Call David forth into action. He will carry the battle right to Goliath, where your life, perhaps even your truth studies, have been sullied with the giant-like thoughts and urges of materialism. Armed with the vital words of truth that flow forth from within your own spring of universal power, go forth and confront beliefs and, the beliefs and rationalizations that justify the material-centered focus of your consciousness. Know for yourself that you're a spiritual being living in a spiritual world guided by spiritual law. The giant of the ego and the sense person will fall on his face. And your whole life will be blessed with a new image and a new direction, with a new consciousness, a new awareness of who you are. And it's good. I'd like to invite you to be still for just a moment. I want you to use your imaging power of mind. Following the symbology of our Bible story, putting ourselves in the picture, get the vision of the David representing the spiritual drive, the urge for awakening and unfoldment and faith, standing on one side of the canyon with the Goliath a material, limited, gadget-conscious center of human mind, resisting one another, caught in a stalemate, bogged down in the feeling of impotence. Nothing is done, nothing is accomplished. Get that picture strong in mind. Not to be negative, but to be realistic of where we need to take steps to overcome. And remember the David consciousness represents the spiritual drive, spiritual forces of your own inner nature. Remove from David, the heavy male, the helmet and the sword, lay it all aside. Just feel good about the fact that you come not with arm, armor and sword and spear, but you come in the name of the Lord of your being. See for yourself that you have within you the capacity to rise up and to be the strong, vital, spiritually motivated person that you can be. So to the taunting words from Goliath, I tell you, money is where it's at. Power and possessions is the goal of life. You ward off this influence of the Goliath force with the realization that you come in the name of the Lord of your being. See yourself going to the spring. There's a point within you where the whole universe rushes and streams and pours into you from all sides. A stream of living water, peace and power. Kneel down at the spring 
and take up stones of affirmation, realization of the truth, calling forth the greatest that is within you, and go forth to meet the Goliath of interior, intellectual, materialistic thoughts within you. As Goliath stands boastfully before you, as your subconscious attitudes of materialism tend to resist inertia-like the growth of your consciousness, take one of the stones, a great, powerful realization of truth. Maybe just such an idea as, I'm one with the power of God, and I can do all things through this power. Take this stone in your sling. Throw it forth to strike Goliath, which falls on its face, loses its head, and you're free. Get the picture in mind. This symbolizes not so much freedom from lack in the world, but freedom from the consciousness of lack. Not freedom from the forces outside, but freedom to be bogged down by them. Freedom to express the truth about yourself. Freedom to grow through all experiences. Freedom to be the person that you can be. Let's make a commitment now. We will symbolically hold up to ourselves the vision of a victorious David and a defeated Goliath, breaking the stalemate that has existed between these parts of our being. We will resist the temptations in the tendencies of the human put all of our emphasis on getting things, getting money, reaching for power. We put the emphasis at the center of our being where it belongs, on the truth of ourselves as spiritual beings. And we go back to our work, back to our affairs in the world, not idealistically saying that the problems don't exist. But affirming that in spite of problems, through the power of the spiritual forces within me, I can encounter and overcome any obstacle. I can know the truth and be free. Just feel grateful now. Something is working in your consciousness. An erosion of the limitations and a building up of positive power. Feel grateful that you're open and receptive to new and wonderful ideas leading to new and wonderful expressions of substance and prosperity in the commitment that you'll always keep centered 
and seek first the kingdom. The center of your own being, which is God seeking to express himself fully through you, as you. And be grateful that all these things, in terms of the jobs, the houses, the positions, the power, all these shall be added unto you because you're inwardly centered. And above all, make the commitment that you'll no longer let the belief in chance or luck stand in your way. For you'll always know that the good that you seek so fervently to achieve in your life it's not a matter of the lucky break, but of earning the right in consciousness to be there, to have those experiences, to demonstrate that good. So this is the story of David and Goliath. It's personally relevant in its metaphysical import as we put ourselves in the picture. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So be it.